there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Marguerite grimaced as the relentless Egyptian sun beat down on her head. When her new husband Ali had suggested visiting Cairo in June, she assumed they'd be cruising down the Nile. Instead, she was sitting on the back of a fly-ridden donkey, heading for some godforsaken tomb in the middle of the desert. Over the past six months or so, all anyone in their social circle wanted to talk about was this King Tut fellow. Marguerite was content to wait until she could see the treasures from his tomb in a museum, but Ali had insisted on visiting in person. He said that as a member of the Egyptian royalty, it would be expected of him. Of course, Marguerite knew it was a load of hogwash. Ali had purchased his royal title, but ever since they got married, she knew better than to oppose his wishes. The consequences were incredibly painful. After what seemed like an eternity, they finally arrived at King Tutankhamun's now fabled tomb. It didn't look like much, just a few stairs descending into the bedrock. As they crossed the threshold and entered the tomb's dark confines, a chill ran down Marguerite's spine. She suddenly had the urge to turn around and go home. But with Ali gripping her hand, that wasn't an option. He was hell-bent on seeing the tomb of his so-called ancestor. He didn't realize that by doing so, he may well have been signing his own death certificate. This is Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our second of two episodes on Tutankhamun's Curse, an ancient magic that was supposedly activated when Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon opened his tomb in November 1922. 
Last week, we examined the turbulent political environment in ancient Egypt that erased King Tutankhamun's place in history for thousands of years. We then saw how an English archaeologist named Howard Carter discovered a small cup bearing Tutankhamun's name and spent over a half a decade searching for his tomb. Finally, in November 1922, he found it. Just a few months later, in April of 1923, Lord Carnarvon, Carter's patron, died. The official cause of death was pneumonia and blood poisoning, but some suspected it was something far more sinister, a curse that had been activated when Tutankhamun's tomb was breached. This week, we'll examine the deaths of several people associated with the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb from 1923 to the early 1930s. We'll look at three different theories to explain Tutankhamun's curse. The first possible explanation is that the story of the curse was the result of sensationalist journalism. The second is that the deaths connected to the curse were actually caused by deadly molds and organic dust. The third is that the deaths were simply due to random chance, or it could be a combination of the three. And there's always the possibility that the tomb may have actually contained an evil force that defies explanation. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On April 5, 1923, 57-year-old George Edward Stanhope Molina Herbert, better known as Lord Carnarvon, died of complications from an infected mosquito bite. Shortly after his death, rumors began to circulate that Carnarvon's illness had been caused by an ancient curse that he and archaeologist Howard Carter had activated when they opened King Tutankhamun's tomb in November 1922. Although there was no mention of it in the official record, newspapers reported that upon entering the tomb, Howard Carter had found a clay tablet that read, Death shall come on swift wings to him that toucheth the tomb of the pharaoh. The concept of an ancient pharaoh's curse wasn't new to English society. Famed Egyptologist Dominique Montserrat believed that it originated in the early 1820s in a show performed in London's West End. In this show, an archaeologist named Giovanni Belzoni would theatrically unwrap recently discovered Egyptian mummies for his enraptured audiences. Montserrat believed that this macabre performance actually inspired an 1827 novel called The Mummy, a tale of the 22nd century. Taking inspiration from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the book tells the story of a reanimated mummy who hunts down the man who brought him back to life. Throughout the 1800s, other notable authors, such as Edgar Allan Poe and Louisa May Alcott, also wrote stories about cursed mummies. Most of them were about reanimated mummies attacking those who had revived them. These books introduced the concept of a cursed mummy to English society, and soon these fictional stories trickled into real life. Before Tutankhamun's curse, there was the unlucky mummy. 
While there had been famous real-life mummies before, such as Ramses II in 1881, the piece known as the Unlucky Mummy was the first ancient Egyptian relic to be associated with a curse. The hysteria surrounding the supposedly cursed object began with a story concocted by English journalist William Stead and his Egyptologist friend Douglas Murray. In the late 1880s, they began regaling their friends with a tall tale about a cursed mummy that a wealthy woman put on display in her drawing room. Around the same time Stead and Murray's yarn about the cursed mummy in the drawing room began to circulate around London, a woman named Mrs. Warwick Hunt donated an ancient coffin lid, also known as a mummy board, to the British Museum on behalf of her brother, Arthur Wheeler. And as rumor had it, the mummy board was cursed. Apparently, the board was originally acquired in the late 1880s by four anonymous Englishmen who were in Egypt to celebrate graduating from Oxford University. Once their Nile cruise ended, they bought a mummy board that had belonged to an ancient priestess of Amun-Ra, the life-giving god of light and air. Ironically, this artifact would bring death and disaster. Almost immediately, they were visited by tragedy. One disappeared from his hotel and was never heard from again. Another lost his arm in a hunting accident. The other two saw their personal and professional lives crumble from a series of bad luck. Suspecting that the mummy board was bringing them misfortune, the companions sold the board to the highest bidder back in England. Eventually, a businessman named Arthur F. Wheeler bought the mummy board at a cut-rate price. He wasn't put off by the item's soiled reputation, but he should have been. Shortly after Wheeler bought the board, three of his family members were severely injured in a road accident. Not long after that, his house burned down. The only part of the house that survived? The room that housed the mummy board. After this series of tragedies, Wheeler moved to America. He left the mummy board in the care of his sister, Mrs. Warwick Hunt, who wanted to get rid of it as soon as possible. Realizing nobody in their right mind would want to buy this cursed object, Mrs. Hunt donated the mummy board to the British Museum in 1889. Once the mummy board was installed in the museum's Egyptian room, things got even stranger. At night, security guards frequently heard frantic hammering and the sound of muffled crying coming from behind the coffin lid. Soon, word began to spread throughout London of the British Museum's so-called unlucky mummy. Worried about the item's negative publicity, the museum's directors decided to store it in the basement. Over a decade passed before the unlucky mummy was heard from again. In 1904, a 33-year-old journalist named Bertram Fletcher Robinson published a story on the supposedly cursed mummy board titled A Priestess of Death. While he didn't completely buy into the curse, Robinson very much bought into the public connection between ancient Egypt and unknowable magic. In his article, he wrote, It is certain that the Egyptians had powers which we in the 20th century may laugh at, yet can never understand. But if Robinson knew the real story behind the mummy board, perhaps he wouldn't have been so apprehensive. In reality, the story of the unlucky mummy was a complete fabrication. 
William Stead and Douglas Murray crafted a tall tale about the curse with the likely intent of just entertaining some friends. But as popular interest in mummies began to rise, it seems that their scary story somehow became conflated with the British Museum's mummy board. Even though the mummy board was just a coffin lid and didn't actually come with a mummy, it took on the haunted properties that the fictional mummy from Stead and Murray's story possessed. To this day, the mummy board is still on display in the British Museum's Egyptian room as exhibit number EA-22542. But visitors hoping to hear it emanate muffled screams will be sorely disappointed. However, the story surrounding this artifact had value beyond its status as an entertaining fireside tale. The Unlucky Mummy Saga helped illustrate the basis of our first theory in explaining Tutankhamun's curse, that it was the result of sensationalist storytelling by overeager journalists. When Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon discovered Tutankhamun's tomb in November 1922, they were met with similar rumors regarding an evil curse within its depths. But unlike the story of the Unlucky Mummy, Tutankhamun's curse wasn't a scary story that took on a life of its own. It was actually a deliberate creation by the media. After Carter discovered the tomb in November of 1922, he and Lord Carnarvon were inundated by journalists clamoring to get a peek inside. Recall from our last episode that, by 1922, the general assumption was that every mummy in the Valley of Kings had been found— The possibility of a new mummy in the tomb that Carter found had the press obsessing over the excavation. In order to get things under control, Lord Carnarvon signed an exclusive press deal with the London Times in January 1922. But by doing so, Carnarvon only made things worse for his team. Since the other journalists weren't able to get the scoop on the dig's latest finds, they were forced to reprint the London Times articles a few days after they originally ran. In order to prevent readers interested in King Tut from defecting to the London Times, these other newspapers resorted to making up fantastically fake stories. One of these stories was about a stone tablet that Carter had discovered warning him that death shall come on swift wings to him that toucheth the tomb of the Pharaoh. Even though Carter steadfastly maintained that no such tablet ever existed, that didn't matter to the people who ate up the frightening story. Additionally, jealous archaeologists who were left out of the dig were eager to discredit Carter's efforts. In 1912, an English Egyptologist named Arthur Weigel discovered what he incorrectly believed to be Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of Kings. Two years later, Carter and Carnarvon obtained the exclusive right to dig in the valley, and Weigel was forced to look elsewhere for work. He didn't find it, and eventually had to return to England. When Tutankhamun's actual tomb was discovered, he was hired by the tabloid newspaper The Daily Mail to cover the excavations. However, due to Lord Carnarvon's exclusive contract with the London Times, Weigel was forced to fight for scraps with all the other journalists. Weigel felt indignant that he was having to struggle to cover the story of the very tomb he had spent years trying to find a decade before. Still, despite this perceived slight, 
Weigel tried to look out for Carter's best interests. In a letter written on January 25, 1923, he warned Carter that there was mounting resentment from Egyptians over foreigners plundering goods from ancient tombs. Apparently, Carter ignored Weigel's warning and continued his work as usual. After Lord Carnarvon's death, Weigel was no longer so accommodating. Responding to Carter's attempts to dismiss the rumors of a curse, Weigel wrote, I must admit that some very strange things have happened in connection with the excavations. Whether there was any truth to it, the combination of the public's pre-existing superstition about ancient magic and the media's grudge against the Tutankhamun excavations created the ideal scenario to start a rumor that an evil curse had killed Lord Carnarvon. However, his death was only the beginning. Over the next decade, another dozen or so people connected with the famous tomb would meet unfortunate and tragic ends. With people who visited the tomb seemingly dying left and right, the theory that the whole thing was no more than a story concocted by the press appeared unlikely. As the fatalities increased, people began to wonder if Tutankhamun's curse was more than a scary story. Maybe there really was a curse. Coming up, we follow the series of deaths connected to Tutankhamun's tomb. We'll examine if they were the result of an ancient curse or if there was a scientific explanation behind what happened. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the story of a cursed mummy board captured people's imaginations throughout England. While the story proved to be a work of fiction, it showed how easy it was for false rumors about ancient curses to become real in people's minds. When Lord Carnarvon died on April 5, 1923, the official cause of death was stated as pneumonia and blood poisoning, brought on by an infected mosquito bite. But many speculated there was something more nefarious behind Lord Carnarvon's death. They might have been right. On May 16, 1923, 59-year-old American financier George J. Gould died shortly after visiting Tutankhamun's tomb. The cause of death was pneumonia. Two months later, Philip Livingston Poe, kin of the famous Edgar Allan, also died of pneumonia after visiting the tomb. In three months, three men who had entered King Tutankhamun's tomb all died from the same illness. 
Of course, it could have been a coincidence, but the pharaoh's shadows seemed to loom over all of them. After Poe's death, an article in the New York Times commented on the Tutankhamun connection. Ever since the Poe's returned from their tour, friends have been jokingly warning them of the mummy curse. The joking wore off, however, when Mr. Poe became ill. While the deaths were linked to Tutankhamun's tomb, they may not have actually been the result of a curse. What's more likely is that magic was invoked as an explanation to a mystery that science was not yet able to discover. But in the decades following this period, modern science began to produce more realistic possible explanations. In 1985, Caroline Stanger-Philippe proposed in her doctoral thesis that some of the deaths could have been caused by an allergic reaction to fungi that grew in the tomb's airtight chambers. In accordance with ancient Egyptian tradition, fruits, vegetables, and other organic substances would have been left in Tutankhamun's tomb to sustain him in the afterlife. Stenger-Philippe theorized that as these items decayed, they created dangerous molds and organic dust. Then, when the tomb was opened, unlucky visitors such as Carnarvon, Gould, and Poe might have contracted allergic alveolitis, in which tiny air chambers in the lungs become inflamed. This condition severely weakens a person's lungs, making them more susceptible to dangerous illnesses such as pneumonia. As Dr. Stenger-Philippe put it in a 1985 interview with the Associated Press, Carter and Carnarvon came to look for gold and treasures and paid no attention to the pink, gray, and green patches of fungi on the wall. That's what killed some of them. The theory garnered support from Stenger-Philippe's peers, although they did point out that it couldn't conclusively explain the curse. He told the Associated Press, we can never recreate the original conditions and we will never have absolute proof. Those who believe in the Pharaoh's curse may go on believing. But a little over a decade later, Stenger Philippe's theory began to gain more traction. In 1999, Dr. Hans Merck from Germany's University of Aachen took dust and rock samples from ancient Egyptian tombs. He found spores from several different strains of aspergillus mold, which can cause congestion or bleeding in the lungs. But if Carnarvon, Gould, and Poe died from exposure to aspergillus, wouldn't more people have died after visiting Tutankhamun's tomb? Three deaths feels like a very low number if this mold was dangerous enough to kill. Not necessarily. Most scientists regard these molds as relatively harmless, as they have an extremely low infection rate. But there are documented cases of people with weakened immune systems contracting lung or ear infections after being exposed to aspergillus molds. In that case, it makes sense that Lord Carnarvon may have been susceptible to infection. As you may recall from the last episode, Carnarvon had been seriously injured in a 1901 car crash. As he tried to recover, he traded the damp English weather for the dry Egyptian heat. In an ironic twist, this attempt to restore his health may have led to his death. Additionally, both Poe and Gould had traveled extensively. Gould had gone from England to Egypt and then to the French Riviera. Poe had traveled across the Atlantic Ocean to visit the tomb. 
Maybe their immune systems had been compromised enough for an aspergillus mold to infect them. However, most scientists generally agreed that the conditions inside the tomb wouldn't have been dangerous enough to threaten even the weakest immune system. If anything, it would be safer for them inside the tomb than outside. F. DeWolf Miller, a professor of epidemiology at the University of Hawaii, told National Geographic, Upper Egypt in the 1920s was hardly what you'd call sanitary. The idea that an underground tomb after 3,000 years would have some kind of bizarre microorganism in it that's going to kill somebody six weeks later and make it look exactly like blood poisoning is very hard to believe. Another reason to think that the deaths connected to Tutankhamun's curse weren't caused by deadly tomb toxins is that not everyone who passed away after visiting the tomb died from a disease. In some cases, it was much more violent. After Philip Poe's death in June 1923, the curse's next victim was Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey, an Egyptian lord who had visited Tutankhamun's tomb in December of 1922. But he didn't die of a disease. He was murdered by his wife, Marguerite Alibert. Fami Bey and Marguerite first met sometime in 1921, when 32-year-old Marguerite was visiting Egypt with some friends. While she was there, she met the 23-year-old Fami Bey. Despite the difference in their social status, Fami Bey was a ridiculously wealthy lord, and Marguerite worked as an escort. The young Egyptian nobleman fell madly in love. After several unsuccessful attempts to woo her, Fami Bey was finally able to arrange a formal tea with Marguerite in Paris on July 30, 1922. She was sufficiently impressed by his efforts and agreed to spend a week in Switzerland with Fami Bey in September. During this trip, Marguerite fell in love. Writing to a friend, she gushed about how kind and gentle Fami Bey was. He was so affectionate that I felt my whole being suffused with a sort of radiant sympathy towards him. Nothing was too good, too beautiful, or too dear for me. That November, Marguerite agreed to his marriage proposal and moved to Egypt. The wedding was set for December of 1922, about a month after Howard Carter discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb. Worried that her personal freedoms might be at risk, Marguerite drew up a clause in the marriage contract stating she would still be allowed to wear Western clothing and that she would retain the right to divorce him. In exchange, she agreed to convert to Islam. But right before the ceremony, where Lord Carnarvon was in attendance, Fami Bey had the divorce clause removed. Additionally, he added a provision that allowed him to take extra wives. Despite Marguerite's misgivings, she still went through with the marriage, and things were good in the beginning. The newlyweds spent their honeymoon in Egypt, visiting Tutankhamun's tomb on two separate occasions. But by mid-January 1923, Fami Bey had transformed into a domineering tyrant. In a taunting letter to Marguerite's sister, he provided an illustration of his abhorrent behavior. Yesterday, to begin with, I did not come in to lunch or dinner, and I also left her alone at the theater. This will teach her, I hope, to respect my wishes. 
With women, one must act with energy to be severe. No bad habits. But Fami Bey was much more than emotionally cruel. He was so violent that Marguerite feared for her life. On January 22, 1923, she wrote a secret letter detailing his threats. Quote, Yesterday, he took his Bible or Koran and swore I must disappear by his hand. This oath was taken without any reason, neither jealousy, bad conduct, nor a scene on my part. As the months dragged on, Fami Bey grew more and more abusive. In early July 1923, the unhappy couple visited London, where they frequented social clubs and took in several theater productions. On July 10, 1923, London was hit by one of the biggest storms in years. In the middle of the downpour, Fami Bey and Marguerite went to see an opera called The Merry Widow, which in hindsight was kind of an ominous foreshadowing for what happened later that night. Shortly after returning to their room at the Savoy Hotel, Marguerite killed her husband with three pistol shots to the chest. In the ensuing trial, Marguerite's lawyer claimed she had killed Fami Bey in self-defense. The lawyer presented evidence of his various abuses, including the secret letter she had written that January. Some thought the viciousness of the storm had driven Marguerite over the edge. Others thought that maybe she had been moved by the Merry Widow's story of female empowerment. But some members of the press wondered if something else drove her to kill her husband. Perhaps realizing that the story of Tutankhamun's curse was beginning to lose steam, journalists who discovered that the couple had visited the tomb proposed that Marguerite had been infected by the ancient evil magic. But if the curse were to blame, it seems odd that it took so long for Marguerite to kill her husband. Additionally, Marguerite herself seemed unaffected by the curse. She escaped any punishment for killing her husband and went on to live in luxury until dying at the age of 80. Unfortunately, there's not much of an explanation other than that magic works in mysterious ways. And if Fami Bey had been the only person connected to the tomb to die in a strange manner, perhaps nobody would have thought to attribute his death to the curse. But he wasn't the only one to die in horrific circumstances. And soon, Tutankhamun's curse began to spread to people who hadn't even visited the tomb. Coming up, we examine whether Tutankhamun's curse was real or if there was a much more innocent explanation behind all the deaths. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. 
Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. And now, back to the story. On July 10th, 1923, Marguerite Alibert shot and killed her husband, Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey. During her trial, Marguerite's lawyer claimed she had acted in self-defense against Fami Bey's various abuses. Because they had visited Tutankhamun's tomb, some people wondered if Fami Bey was a victim of an ancient curse. As with Lord Carnarvon's death, this connection may have been little more than the concoction of overeager journalists. After all, his death didn't resemble that of Lord Carnarvon, Thomas J. Gould, or Philip Poe, who all died from illness. But shortly after Fami Bey's death, other people connected to the tomb began to die in similarly strange circumstances. On September 26, 1923, Lord Carnarvon's half-brother, Aubrey Herbert, died of complications from dental surgery. If it was the curse that killed him, then Herbert had died just for being related to Carnarvon. The next man to apparently succumb to Tutankhamun's curse was radiologist Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who, like Aubrey Herbert, had never entered Tutankhamun's tomb. He was merely hired to X-ray King Tut's mummy. On January 11, 1924, Douglas Reed left England and set off for Cairo. Within four days, he was dead from a mysterious illness. For a few months, there were no more deaths that could be traced to King Tutankhamun. But on September 9, 1924, archaeologist Hugh Evelyn White shot himself while riding in a taxicab in Leeds, England. He had been one of the first archaeologists to enter the tomb after Howard Carter. In November 1924, Sir Lee Stack, the governor general of Sudan, was assassinated in Cairo shortly after visiting the tomb. After this latest death, it once again appeared that Tutankhamun's curse had gone quiet. And once again, it proved to only be a brief respite. In March 1926, two French Egyptologists, Georges Benedita and Professor M. Casanova, died after visiting the tomb. Benedita, a curator at the Louvre, apparently succumbed from heat stroke while in Egypt, while Casanova died in mysterious circumstances. Like many of the curse's victims, almost all of these deaths had a simple explanation. But they did all occur over a relatively short period. In a New York Times article that followed their deaths, eminent scholar Dr. Joseph Charles Madrus commented on the enduring rumors of the mummy's curse. Quote, This is no childish superstition which can be dismissed with a shrug of the shoulder. We must remember that the Egyptians practiced magic rites, the power of which held no doubts for them. I am absolutely convinced that they knew how to concentrate upon a mummy certain dynamic powers of which we possess very incomplete notions. Two years after that, archaeologist Arthur Mace, who had helped remove the barrier blocking Tutankhamun's burial chamber, died in strange circumstances. Mace's health had been in decline since 1924, 
but in late March 1928, his health took a turn for the worse. He died on April 6, 1928, almost five years to the day after Lord Carnarvon's passing. Mace's doctors believed that he died from arsenic poisoning, although they were unsure what caused it. It was used in some medicines at the time, and museums also used it for preservation purposes. Mace personally attributed his illness to swallowing too much dust and sand during his digs in Egypt, but others believed he was a victim of Tutankhamun's curse. The year after Arthur Mace's death, it seemed as though the curse had claimed another member of Lord Carnarvon's family. In May 1929, Mervyn Herbert, Lord Carnarvon's other half-brother, contracted malaria while he was in Rome. He went to the British Embassy to recuperate, but he developed pneumonia and died. It was the same illness that had killed Lord Carnarvon and their brother, Aubrey. Like Aubrey, Mervyn had never visited Tutankhamun's resting place. Simply being related to Lord Carnarvon was apparently enough for a death sentence. Public interest in the curse erupted even further a few months later. On November 15, 1929, Captain Richard Bethel, who had been Howard Carter's personal secretary during the excavations, died in his sleep at London's exclusive bath club. Doctors later discovered that he had been smothered to death. By most accounts of the time, Bethel's death was at least the tenth that could be somehow traced to Tutankhamun. And it was more than just newspaper reporters paying attention to the supposed curse. On December 23, 1932, English newspaper The Guardian showed just how pervasive belief in the curse really was. When wood specimens from the shrine that surrounded the sarcophagus were sent to Oxford University, some of the technicians, quote, were not so completely skeptical as to be anxious to take charge of the wood. The wood proved, according to the experts, unexpectedly difficult to handle for cutting, and afterwards, a beaker in which it was being boiled splintered to pieces at a crucial point in the experiment. Finally, when the work was nearly ended, the apparatus containing the wood simply blew up in the laboratory. Now, it may seem like we're just listing off a long line of names of people who died in close proximity and all had some level of distant connection to King Tut's tomb. Correlation may not be causation, but during this time, there actually was a lot of steam behind the idea of a real-life mummy's curse. In fact, in 1934, the concept of the curse had become so widespread that someone actually tried to conduct a study on its validity. Egyptologist Herbert Winlock decided he wanted to disprove the notion of Tutankhamun's curse. To do so, he gathered information on everyone who had been present when the tomb was first opened. He found out that in the decades since the opening of the tomb, only six out of the nearly 40 people directly connected with the tomb's opening had died. In addition to the deaths of Lord Carnarvon, Hugh Evelyn White, Richard Bethel, and Arthur Mace, Winlock also named a Sir William Garston and Sir Charles Cust as victims of the curse. While Winlock put forth a convincing argument, not everyone was swayed to his side. Film director Tom Terrace, who claimed to have been there when the tomb was first opened, 
claimed that over 50 people who had entered the tomb were dead within a year. But of all the people who could have been targeted by the curse, there was one person who refused to take stock in it, Howard Carter. He should have been the curse's primary target. After all, he was the one who discovered the tomb. He was the one who opened it. He was the one who first laid eyes upon Tutankhamun's sarcophagus. But the closest Carter ever got to acknowledging anything strange after the expedition was when he spotted some jackals in the Egyptian desert in 1926. These exceedingly rare animals were associated with Anubis, the Egyptian god of death. In the many decades Carter worked in Egypt, it was the only time he saw them. In his memoirs, Carter refused to give any credence to the idea of a curse. He wrote, quote, There was perhaps no place in the world freer from risk than the tomb. It is indeed difficult to speak of this form of ghostly calumny with calm. As the years went by and more and more of his colleagues were met with strange ends, Carter steadfastly stood by his view that there was nothing supernatural within Tutankhamun's tomb. And after Richard Bethel's death in 1930, there were few, if any, deaths linked to the curse. On March 2, 1939, Howard Carter passed away at the age of 64 from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Because over 16 years had passed since Carter had opened Tutankhamun's tomb, few people believed that his death was due to the curse. Carter himself certainly didn't seem to bear the pharaoh any ill will. The inscription on his tombstone was taken from a cup Carter had found in the tomb. It read, May your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. And yet, there were some who believed that Carter had been afflicted by the curse. Perhaps he had suffered from it more than anyone else. His punishment wasn't to die an early, unnatural death. Rather, he was doomed to watch his closest friends die while he lived out the rest of his life. After Carter's death, so few people remained from the original excavations that stories surrounding the curse largely disappeared. But whispers about its existence never quite went away. In 2002, Dr. Mark Nelson of Australia's Monash University conducted a study he hoped would put the controversy to an end once and for all. He expanded on Herbert Winlock's 1934 study by taking a statistical look at the people who were actually present at the tomb. He wanted to see if the dates of their deaths were actually hastened by visiting Tutankhamun's resting place. The study Nelson conducted was called a retrospective cohort study, meaning he only examined the medical records of a specific group of people. In this case, the group was restricted only to Westerners who were present when the tomb of Tutankhamun's mummy was opened. He excluded Egyptians from the study because of the difference in life expectancy. In total, Nelson studied the records of 44 people, of those 44, 25 were associated with the curse, either by visiting the tomb or closely associating with those that had. He found that these 25 people lived to an average age of 70, while those who weren't exposed to the curse lived to an average age of 75. 
Additionally, the exposed group lived for an average of 20.8 years after visiting the tomb, while the unexposed lived for another 28.9 years. Taken at face value, it did seem like visiting the tomb lowered one's life expectancy. However, Nelson's deeper statistical analysis showed this probably wasn't the case. Ultimately, he concluded that there was a 95% chance that these differences were due to random variation. For those who steadfastly believed that there was a curse, that 5% chance was an indication that maybe, just maybe, there was something unnatural lurking in the tomb. But in all likelihood, there was another explanation for what could have driven people's belief in Tutankhamun's curse. The cultural reverberations from King Tutankhamun's curse can still be felt in pop culture. Movies like 1932's The Mummy, starring Boris Karloff, and the late 1990s, early 2000s Mummy franchise proved cursed mummies have the power to captivate audiences across the decades. What do you think, Richard? Were the deaths following the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb mere coincidence? Or was there something else behind them? I'm not convinced that Tutankhamun's curse was anything other than overly sensationalist storytelling. While it is odd that so many people associated with the tomb died, Mark Nelson's 2002 study was enough to convince me that there wasn't anything out of the ordinary going on. I agree. Out of all the deaths, I think the only one that might have been affected by entering the tomb would be Lord Carnarvon. He did have a weak constitution, and perhaps an infection from mold was enough to put him over the edge, so to speak. Whether or not King Tut had a curse protecting his tomb, the discoveries Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon made proved to be an invaluable window into ancient Egyptian culture. The remarkably well-preserved mummy provided further insight into the mummification process, as researchers were able to learn that the ancient Egyptians would dry out the corpse to prevent rot and would remove the brain and digestive tract. The immense wealth left in the tomb also showed the immense value the Egyptians placed on the afterlife. Even Tutankhamun, who wasn't considered to be an important ruler, warranted nearly 5,500 items inside his tomb. On his body alone, King Tut had 143 pieces of gold jewelry. King Tut also influenced culture in ways other than a few successful movie franchises. The iconography from the items found in his tomb carried over into the art world and helped found the Art Deco movement, which continues to carry influence to this day. In the end... The fascination with Tutankhamun shows the inextricable pull of ancient Egypt. It is a civilization so old that it was already regarded as ancient during the Roman Empire. As discoveries such as King Tutankhamun's tomb help provide a clearer picture of this incredible society, our interest in ancient Egypt only grows. It's mysterious, captivating, and perhaps it carries a dark magic that we will never comprehend. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. 
You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast shows for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast shows, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.